Hello, I'm Tom Hauser. On Tuesday, lawmakers will return to the state capitol for the legislative session. This is much later than they usually convene. It is not a budget year, so there are only a couple things the legislature must get done. If it weren't for some leftover business from last session, you could argue the legislature wouldn't have to do anything this year. The odd-year sessions are much longer because they have to pass a budget, but these even-year sessions are usually devoted to passing a bonding bill with construction projects around the state. A bonding bill will likely pass in the range of a billion dollars, not quite as high as the governor's proposal of $1.5 billion. Lawmakers will also likely have to pass a bill that will conform Minnesota's tax law with the new federal tax bill so some Minnesotans don't end up with tax increases. And as a result of Governor Dayton's veto of legislative funding last session, they also need to repass that legislative funding so they can keep operating. But at this legislative preview session with the state capitol press corps, DFL Senate leader Tom Bach said he wants to add approval of state employee union contracts to a bill approving funding for the legislature, a move Republicans are certain to resist. Our intent is not to add anything extra into that bill. Um, our intent is to just send a bill just the way it was, uh, not, to, not to try to, you know, use it for a vehicle for anything else, but just to uh, kind of use it as something to close that chapter. I will be advocating very hard that ratification of those state employee contracts be included in the legislative budget. I, I was pretty disappointed when it was rejected by the subcommittee. Other than that, there was mostly a spirit of bipartisanship, so much so that Speaker Dowd even snapped a selfie with Governor Dayton before they got started with that session. Two new lawmakers will be sworn in following Monday's special elections. DFLer Carla Bigham, a former House member, won the Senate District 54 seat with nearly 51% of the vote. In southern Minnesota, Republican Jeremy Munson won House District 23B with 59% of the vote. Stephen Shear, one of our political experts at Carleton College, says the results were not very surprising. The percentage won by the winning candidates is very similar to the percentages won by the incumbents from the same party two years ago. Some had wondered if President Trump's first year in office would have a big impact on those races. It does not appear there was much of an impact. This week, a judge dismissed a lawsuit against Lieutenant Governor Michelle Fishbach, saying the court doesn't have jurisdiction over whether she can also remain in the state Senate. Fishbach was sued for trying to keep her state Senate seat while also serving as lieutenant governor. The Republican automatically became lieutenant governor when Tina Smith was appointed to the U.S. Senate by Governor Dayton. A Democratic constituent of Fishbach's sued to force her out of her Senate seat where Republicans have just a one-vote majority. The lawsuit filed on behalf of a Sauk Rapids resident argued it's unconstitutional to hold both offices. Former St. Paul Mayor Chris Coleman dropped out of the race for governor this week. He released a statement saying, quote, We had an opportunity in 2018 to establish a DFL majority in the state legislature and elect a governor who will continue to advance the cause of progress for all Minnesotans. Though I hoped to be that governor, rest assured that I will be right there with you. At the local precinct caucuses, Coleman got 12% of the votes coming in fourth overall. There is also a possibility of another Republican jumping into the gubernatorial race. Former Governor Tim Pawlenty has yet to announce if he's running for governor after meeting with potential donors and advisors earlier this week. He has resigned as the CEO of the Financial Services Roundtable in Washington. 
Pawlenty served as governor from 2003 to 2011, but his record as governor and as a representative of the financial services industry will be closely scrutinized if he does decide to run. Now, as for Republican Speaker Kurt Doubt, he said this week he has not ruled out a run yet, but says he is, quote, not actively pursuing a run for governor. Former State Representative Joe Radinovich is joining Minnesota's 8th Congressional District race. The Democrat and Crosby native served one term in the State House and currently serves as Chief of Staff to Minneapolis Mayor Jacob Fry. We told you last week that Congressman Rick Nolan would not seek re-election, saying he wants to spend more time with his family. Radinovich ran Nolan's 2016 campaign. Also already in the running for the 8th District are Democrats Leah Pfeiffer and Kirsten Kennedy. And for now, Pete Stauber is the sole Republican running, but that could change. Governor Dayton has a new plan to tackle the opioid crisis in Minnesota. Numbers from the State Department of Health show that 395 people died of opioid overdoses in 2016. Nearly 200 of those deaths were caused by prescription medication. Hennepin County Sheriff Rich Stanek and other law enforcement met with the president about that issue this week. And now Governor Dayton and a bipartisan group of lawmakers say drug companies need to get involved. Governor Dayton and a bipartisan group of lawmakers say this is the year to take a stand against opioid abuse. In 2016, 395 opioid overdose deaths were reported in Minnesota, an 18% increase over 2015. There were 43,000 deaths nationwide. That's why the governor proposes a plan to have drug companies pay for overdose prevention efforts. It was opposed last year by the drug companies whose products have caused this epidemic and continue to fuel this expansion. And those ongoing efforts should not be paid by Minnesota taxpayers. The governor has bipartisan allies in his fight. Republican Representative Dave Baker lost a son to an opioid overdose after he first started using them for a back injury. DFL Senator Chris Eaton lost a daughter to a heroin overdose. Heroin is an opioid. Eaton says drug companies need to stop resisting taking responsibility. Like many parents who've lost children to this, I'm pretty angry about that. And I don't see any reason why the taxpayers should have to pay to fix this. Under Dayton's plan, the state would fund $12 million in 2019. Then in 2021, a penny a pill opioid stewardship program would be funded by drug companies paying a fee to the state. It would raise $20 million per year for prevention, treatment, and emergency response programs. I'm a Republican for crying out loud, and I don't like the sound of that. But what I will tell you is, for this issue today, this is the best option for us to help fix this problem. In the short term, Governor Dayton is also hoping the legislature will pass $1 million in funding for naloxone, a drug that can rapidly reverse an opioid overdose. He wants to distribute it to first responders around the state that don't already have access to it. And I am joined now by former DFL State Senator Ember Reichgott-Young and Republican strategist Andy Brem for political analysis. Thank you both for being here. Let's start by talking about the opioid crisis. It clearly is not one of the things that has to be done in the coming legislative session that starts on Tuesday, but something that is going to get a lot of attention both in Minnesota and around the country. And Andy, it's a tough spot for Republicans. They don't like new taxes, and this fee on drug companies is essentially a tax. 
Well, I mean, this is a crisis of epic proportion, so something has to be done differently. Uh, and I applaud the governor for taking leadership on that. Again, these are called controlled substances for a reason. They need to be controlled much better. Uh, they're easily addictive, and they're uh, deadly. So uh, good for them. Let's, let's, we should think out of the box and think creatively on how to solve this problem. Ember, do you think Republicans will be able to get enough of them to put their money where their mouth is on this issue? This may be one of those areas where we can really find some bipartisan agreement and start out the session with something that we all need to address. We could be nation-leading in this because this epidemic is going all over the country. And with Prince's death here in a related area, I think that could help. Now, speaking of the legislative session, again, it starts on Tuesday, and the last session ended very acrimoniously with the governor vetoing legislative funding, uh, but we heard from Speaker Doubt and Governor Dayton a, a spirit of bipartisanship at a legislative preview with the Capitol Press Corps. Let's listen to what they had to say. We're going to clash. I mean, we have very different ideology. We represent very different constituencies. Uh, you know, Minnesotans are very divided among themselves. And I think it's, it's unrealistic. I think we're just going to come and have it all be sweetness and harmony and life. We do disagree on, on issues, and, and um, you know, we hold our positions uh, firmly, and we, we advocate for those positions. Um, so we are going to disagree. But, but I think, you know, we have both tried to do a very good job of, of separating those two and, and treating each other respectfully even when we do disagree. And, and, of course, part of the definition of politics is the clash of ideas, and, and that's really what it's about. But if they can set personality aside and some policy differences, maybe they can find areas where they can agree. Yeah, I mean, politics is a tough-hitting subject. There's nothing wrong with that, but good for them. I mean, I think they understand what their constituents expect, and that is for them to get to work. So I love it. I think it's a, a great uh, sentiment. Voters have been clamoring for this, well, essentially forever. <laughs> but this is an election year, and I think people want to see the legislature get some constructive things done. I think they want to see that on the state and the federal level, but let's have a reality check here. This is an election year. The House of Representatives is up, and there's going to be a huge run for that. Um, if you look at the history of midterm elections, the opposing party generally picks up 17 seats on average in the House of Representatives. That means the Democrats could take control because they only need 11. So I really believe that these election year politics are going to pretty much overcome everything uh, on the policy. Did you buy those numbers? Yeah, I mean, we'll see. I, I, I kind of agree with Ember. I mean, at the end of the day, it's an election year. It's going to be a hard-hitting year. Uh, now, speaking of election years, in the 8th District, uh, Joe Radinovich has jumped into the race on the Democratic side. Now that Rick Nolan is out, he worked for Rick Nolan, ran his campaign in 2016. How wide open is this race going to be? There's other candidates who are kicking the tires on this, including Stuart Mills. I think there's going to be a lot more candidates on this one, and I think it is wide open on both sides. I, my concern as a Democrat is that I fear for the divide in that 8th district on the, the mining issue, and I'm really concerned that will affect the outcome of that race. Just 10 seconds left. Can Republicans pick that seat up? Absolutely. I think Rick Nolan was going to be a uh, formidable uh, candidate. Right now we're saying, you know, leftist Minneapolis candidates get in the race. Republicans look pretty good in that contest. All right. Well, it is going to be a fascinating election year. I think we can all agree on that, whether you're a Republican or a Democrat. Yeah. Andy and Ember, Always thanks is. for being here. Up next, our political experts will join me for Face Off. We'll be back in two minutes to talk about some issues in Washington, including gun control. And later, a look back 50 years to a fatal hockey injury in Minnesota that eventually led to changes that made the game safer. 
And time now for Face Off. Annette Meeks from the Freedom Foundation of Minnesota is here along with DFL strategist Sarah Walker. Thank you both for being Thank here. Thank you. What a lot of people were talking about this week in the aftermath of the school shooting in Florida is what to do about this problem. I think everybody agrees it's an epidemic and there are no easy answers. Those are the only things that people <laughs> agree on, uh, really, when it comes down to it. Uh, from the DFL perspective, mm -hmm. what are your thoughts? Well, first of all, I would say there are things that are pretty easy that we could do, but the reality is the Republicans in Congress are just unwilling to do this. There are very simple solutions. The first one is providing criminal background checks on all gun purchases. There is, we have to get criminal background checks to volunteer in our church, to not have to do this before getting a gun. But the second issue is that frequently what you hear as a red herring from the Republicans is it's an issue of mental health and not guns. But the reality is there are proposals on the table in Minnesota and nationally to address guns and mental health. There's things called gun violence restraining order, which allow concerned parents or family members to take away gun rights from people temporarily while they're experiencing mental health crises. And the last thing is, it's worse than not just doing anything. The Republicans in the House have been pushing bills to actually reduce restrictions on gun rights. So this Florida case, though, the, the man accused in this case, police were called to his home dozens of times. He was still able to buy a gun and pass a background check. There, there seem to be holes in the system. There are holes in the system, and there's also not adherence to the system. As early as middle school, officials tried to get him transferred to a school for children with special needs, especially his violent outbursts. That was not followed. That protocol was not followed. At least twice we know the FBI was contacted because of violent things he had posted online. Again, the FBI did not follow up on that. It doesn't do us any good to make new laws if we don't even enforce those that we currently have on the books. What are Republicans going to be willing to do on this issue, whether it's about mental health or gun control, maybe banning the sale of AR-15s, those types of things? Well, I think part of the problem is we need responsible adults in Washington and at our state capitals, but first in Washington, to step forward and say, this is a problem for our country. Let's work together to solve it. I might remind my Democrat friends, this problem didn't start with President Trump. When they had control of Congress and the presidency, they did nothing. Let's work together and fix it. And let's start with some responsible things. For example, with the mental health, we have to be very careful on how we restrict purchases of guns for people with mental health, but it can't be so broad that none of them can buy guns. How big of an issue will this be in the Minnesota governor's race? Tim Walls, the leading contender on the Democratic side, has had some support from the NRA. Uh, how is that going to play uh, with the Democratic base? Because that's fairly popular in greater Minnesota. Well, I guess the first thing I'd say is I think that the fact that Tim Walls has had that NRA mem uh, A rating is actually going to make him a better person to advocate for gun violence prevention measures. He has said on the record numerous times that gun violence prevention is a priority for him, that he supports criminal background checks on all gun purchases, and most recently he voted against the um, egregious bills that the House and the Congress um, put forward. So I have all the confidence in the world that he will be with the Democrats I on this. Final quick word on Tim this. Tim Waltz is going to have some splaining to do to their delegates. I think there's a lot of uh, far-left activists that have been re-energized in this, in this campaign, and they are not going to like his position on guns at all. All right. We're going to hear a lot more about this on the campaign trail, of course. We have a special note about our former colleague here, Sarah Janicek. There is going to be a memorial service for her on Thursday, February 22nd at Salem Covenant Church in New Brighton. 11 o'clock service this coming Thursday with a 10 o'clock visitation. So uh, hopefully a lot of her friends and, uh, and 
loyal viewers here uh, might be able to attend that. Well, it is known as the most tragic day in NHL history, the day Minnesota North Star Bill Masterton died on the ice. And we found the first known film clips of that game 50 years later. Coming up, we talk to former teammates and his son, and we show them the video for the first time. This NHL season marks the 50th anniversary of a tragic day in Minnesota history. You still look at it as being something that's almost like uh, a dream. It's a nightmare. Fifty years after the death of Minnesota North Star Bill Masterton, we're able to pay tribute to him with film we've recently rediscovered. It's the only known film that exists from a game at Met Center when Masterton suffered fatal injuries in 1968. Here's the Bill Masterton story in a way you've never seen it before. Bill Masterton was Canadian, but his story is an American tragedy. Just a superb gentleman, great family man, very good hockey player. Born in Manitoba, his heart ended up in Minnesota. Nobody expects a 29-year-old athlete, you know, to be just all of a sudden gone. After he thought his dream of playing in the NHL was over, he took a job with Honeywell and settled in the Twin Cities with his wife and two young children. Perseverance and sportsmanship and uh, dedication to the game, that was Bill. Those are among the reasons Bill Masterton was lured away from Honeywell at age 29 to become the first player ever signed by the Minnesota North Stars. He was a classy, talented hockey player. But three months later, Masterton would be at the center of the darkest day in NHL history. They hit him so hard. Uh, some of them, even some of the players, even thought he was out before he hit the ice. Masterton was drafted by the Montreal Canadiens out of college, but with just six NHL teams, he couldn't crack a lineup until the league expanded and the North Stars called. And my mother always told me he just couldn't turn it down. You know, she, she said, Carol, it's, it's really my last shot at playing pro hockey, and I may only have a couple years, but I, I just have to do it. Masterton knew it was a gamble. The gamble started to pay off, though, when he scored the first goal in North Stars history in the team's first game. But then, the fateful day, January 13th, 1968. He passed the puck, and right as he let go of the puck, he got hit. Good, clean hit by two players at the same time. And then he went down and hit his head. Scott Masterton was three years old when his dad died from injuries suffered in this game. Oh, isn't that something? He'd never seen any film of his dad, number 19, playing for the North Stars until now. Wow. Wow. <laughs> that's, that's amazing. Uh, what goes through your mind when you see something like 50 years later? Well, it, uh, it fleshes some things out a little bit, you know, makes them feel a little bit more real, you know. For the first time in 50 years, we've uncovered in our KSTP archives a portion of the final game of Masterton's life. Yeah, that's Billy right behind the net. That's amazing. Former North Star Lou Nanny was a teammate of Masterton's on the U.S. national team. It's probably, you know, within a shift or two of when he got the fatal hit. There is no recording of the fatal hit in the Oakland Seals game at Met Center in Bloomington, but now we can see some of Bill Masterton's final moments before being fatally injured. The fact that it exists is just remarkable. The fact that you found it.
we were uh, season ticket holders, and uh, I don't think we missed a game. John Rendell was a close friend and former U.S. national teammate of Masterton's. He had just entered Met Center with his wife late in the first period. We noticed on the ice there was activity, and we didn't realize it was Bill, but it was Bill being treated on the ice. Rendell immediately went to talk to Masterton's wife. She didn't think that it was life-threatening at that point, and, uh, but it was serious. You can't see anything else that comes even close to it. I mean, that was uh, so devastating. It wasn't too long after talking to the doctors that it was life-threatening. Rendell was at the hospital when Bill Masterton died 30 hours after his injuries. Like nearly all NHL players, Masterton didn't wear a helmet. At Met Center a week later, there were still few players wearing helmets, but it quickly spurred debate. Well, Coach, of course, the whole league and, in fact, the whole sports world has been saddened by Bill Masterton's death. What's been the reaction of your players to possibly wearing headgear? I think that uh, some of our players now are considering wearing it. It would be another 11 years before the NHL mandated helmets. Scott Masterton says his dad's death paved the way. I think that was kind of probably a hallmark moment in the NHL, maybe in sports in general. However, it didn't keep Bill Masterton's son from playing hockey. My mother never blinked when I said I wanted to play hockey. She was very much in the idea, this is a freak accident, and this is, you know, physical things are part of any sport. Every year, the NHL gives the Bill Masterton Memorial Trophy to the player who best exemplifies the qualities of perseverance, sportsmanship, and dedication to hockey. Masterton jerseys still hang in the Dallas Stars Arena and at Bloomington Ice Garden. And for many years, Bloomington High School hockey players have also been granted Masterton scholarships for college. Well, just ahead, we'll show you a good sign that spring is just around the corner in Minnesota. We're back in 90 seconds. We're getting closer to the end of winter and closer to spring. Here's a sure sign of that. We're transitioning between seasons. The Ice Palace in Rice Park in St. Paul came down just days after the end of this year's St. Paul Winter Carnival. It's now melting in a parking lot somewhere. The Ice Palace was made with 4,000 blocks of ice and stood 70 feet tall. And starting now, you can listen to episodes of At Issue every week on iTunes and Podcast One. We have links posted on our website. And that's all the time we have for now. We hope you can join us again next week for another edition of At Issue.